Kubernetes community and welcome to another episode of the PodCTL podcast. Uh, this week's a little bit of a special episode. We're, we're recording on the show floor at uh, KubeCon this year and uh, it's been a pretty exciting sh- show so far. Do anything, Brian? Yeah, it's crazy. It's uh, 40, 4,500 people or so. So it's about four times as big as Seattle was, twice as big as uh, Berlin. So the show keeps growing. number of people in the community keeps growing. It's, it's good. It's, uh, you know, it's a fun place to be right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, what's great about it, too, is to see all the other things in the ecosystem around Kubernetes. It's not, uh, you know, I think of some of the you know early OpenStack Summit days where it was like, everyone's here's our OpenStack. Right. So there's, obviously, there's plenty of vendors that do Kubernetes, but it's interesting all the other, you know, technologies around it. Right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, there are cloud providers here, there are tools, there are things around applications. It's, uh, it's a really good broad ecosystem. And, and sort of like Kelsey showed this morning in his demo, it's, it's, we've gone from it's cool technology to how do we make it simpler? How do we make it easier to consume? And, um, so we're going to, we're going to dig into a lot of that today. So, uh, once you introduce our guest, we've got, uh, somebody who I know people have been screaming at us for a long time now. They're like, we want to talk to Microsoft. We want to know what Microsoft is doing. So we're going to dig into that today. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about our guest here, um, Gabe. Um, we we were we were trying to set this up all week, and then even before that, because like you said, because the uh, you know that's the number one ask we get on Twitter, and everything is what's Microsoft doing with you know? Oh, I saw Microsoft's doing this. When are you can get someone from Microsoft on to talk about it. So, Gabe, what what's your role at Microsoft right now? To introduce so, yeah, yourself. I, I, first of all, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, big fan of the show. So. Yeah, my role is lead program manager for containers for Microsoft Azure. So I cover things like our Kubernetes service, um, Azure container instances, a bunch of developer tooling, open service broker, and some other stuff that we got in the works. Yeah. So you guys, uh, you came over as part of the Deus acquisition. Um, you've been heavily involved with containers and Kubernetes for a long time. A long time. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so why don't we, why don't we dive right into it? Cause obviously, um, you guys, ever since the, the acquisition happened, you know, the amount of work that's going on at Microsoft around containers has sort of exploded. I mean, they already had the, the Azure container service there, but uh, Azure, you know, the new Azure Kubernetes service or container service, ACI, Draft. Like, when you're talking about where do you start? Because there's so much going on right now. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, I think for for it's important for folks to understand that Microsoft is making big bets on yeah. Kubernetes. I think that's probably been evident for a while, you know, from the hiring of Brendan Burns, who's my counterpart on the engineering side, uh, you know, to the Deus acquisition, you know, investments we've been making in developer tooling, uh, the way that we launched ACI with sort of a, you know, a nod to Kubernetes and, you know, lots of things that we've been doing to demonstrate this. And, you know, I, you know, I myself sit on the board of the cloud native computing foundation, you know, where we represent, you know, Kubernetes, and related technologies there. So lots of investments across the board. And uh, yeah, I don't really, really know where to dig in either. I mean, what, what, what do you, what do you uh, what guys want to talk about? Well, let, let's start with the basics. So um, the, the original Azure Container Service um, was, you know, uh, Meso, it was Mesos, it was Swarm, it also, um, I believe, did Kubernetes. Give us the, the basics. What's the difference between sort of the new version that came out um, that's called AKS and, and the previous version? Yeah, so uh, I think that one of the things I love about Microsoft is that we're all about meeting customers where they are. And when Azure Container Service first came out back in about 2015, a lot of people weren't really sure where they wanted to go with container orchestration. 
right? It was, you know, a lot of people trying different things. And, you know, we certainly saw a lot of interest in Docker Swarm, a lot of interest in, in Mesosphere and DCOS and budding interest. I'd describe it in, in Kubernetes back during that time, mm-hmm. right? Um, it was interesting, you know, at Deus, we were doing the same thing. Like our PaaS platform offered three different orchestrators. And what we decided over time at Deus was, you know, in order for us to provide a really great experience for customers, we needed to focus our efforts on one. And so when I got to Microsoft, you know, one of the biggest bits of feedback we were hearing from folks was that they really wanted a more managed experience from their mm-hmm. container service. They didn't have, want to have to worry about upgrading it. They didn't want to have to worry about the operational day two concerns. Um, and it really made sense for us to kind of, uh, you know, focus on one area to solve that problem wholly and completely. And, you know, it just made sense. You know, the market had, you know, had, had been aligning on, on, on Kubernetes and, you know, everything kind of lined up. And the new version of our container service is a fully managed service. Um, available today. You can use like sign up and, and use this and upgrade the cluster like today. It's available. Um, and yeah, all based on Kubernetes. And we're really excited about what this allows us to do going forward. How do you, how do you manage, um, you know, so one of the things that's, that's awesome about the new online services is customers don't have to hopefully do anything for the most part, right? The, the cloud providers take care of it. How do you, because Microsoft obviously has a ton of background in dealing with enterprise customers have been doing it for decades. Enterprise customers don't always love to be on the bleeding edge or they could be a retailer and they have outage windows. Like how, how do you manage having the, the managed service be sort of like you don't see anything, but also going like, Oh, we don't, how do we deal with upgrades? And we don't want to do an upgrade when, when you don't want to show it. Like how do you, how do you manage through that? You, know, I gotta say that's a tricky problem because the managed service is inherently a trade off between, you know, some uh, best practices and, and, and that, you know, ultimately wind up limiting flexibility and, and the not number of knobs and dials that you can tune on the thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's a constant, you know, that, that, that's what we do in the kind of the PM role is make sure we're talking to customers and, and hearing that. So one of the things that's different, for example, about um, you know, uh, our Kubernetes service versus, say, Google's service, is that we don't upgrade customers' clusters without their notice, right? We, you know, we have heard very strongly from people that taking an upgrade, especially in an enterprise context, is something that folks want uh, to, you know, they want to push the big red button. And so <laughs> that's how this works today is they get to push the big red button. And I actually don't see that changing, uh, uh, you know, right now. We don't get a lot of demand for, uh, you know, from folks to auto-upgrade clusters. And, you know, I think it's interesting you see, you know, companies like CoreOS who are promoting like sort of auto upgrading environments. And, you know, again, I, I think that works in, in really bleeding edge customers who've tuned their workloads uh, to be able to handle that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of enterprises, they just don't want that. Right. Yeah. So, but, you know, it, it depends. You know, we want to, we, we, we address a broad swath of, of types of customers, but enterprise is certainly our sweet spot. And like you said, you give them the button. So if they want to upgrade, they can do it. And if they want to yep. wait, they can, they can do that too. That's right. And, and, you know, even things like within the upgrade, making sure that we gracefully coordinate and drain nodes as part of the upgrade mm-hmm. process is, you know, something we take very seriously. And, um, yeah, uh, those features are important again for production grade workloads, you know, with an SLA on the service, you gotta, you gotta take that stuff, you know, seriously. Now, some of the, uh, so we were at, we were at, uh, reInvent last week. And, uh, you know, the two big announcements there were for, for AWS was their, uh, container, Kubernetes container service and something called Fargate, uh, sort of, you know, a per container thing. And I thought it was, uh, interesting to press around a lot of that was AWS is playing catch up for once because Microsoft already had this with ACI. So can, can you talk a little bit about ACI? 
Yeah. Um, glad you noticed that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I do think it's a interesting case. Uh, you know, we were, as you said, the, the first to market with Azure Container Instances. And for folks who aren't familiar, Azure Container Instances, you know, it, 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 it's sort of uh, taking the concept of serverless and tweaking it a little bit, right? Serverless is typically three things uh, or considered to be three things, right? It's uh, uh, microbilling. It's invisible infrastructure, and it's an event-based programming model. And what we did with container instances is we took that event-based programming model, the requirement to use functions mm-hmm. as you know, sort of the programming model, and we said, why don't you just use containers, and we'll give you the other two. And I actually think it's the best of all worlds. And But what was interesting was when we released it, as with any first-of-its-kind service, we didn't really know how customers were going to use it. We just thought it was a thing that needed to exist, right? Um, and one of the things we were very adamant about was that we release it with a thing called the ACI connector for Kubernetes. And what that did is it allowed folks who wanted this kind of simple, multi-tenant, isolated container as a first-class citizen in the cloud, you know, no VMs and that sort of thing, they could plug that into a Kubernetes cluster and schedule workloads to it via Kubernetes. So you get the benefits of microbillion and invisible infrastructure through the Kubernetes API that everyone knows and loves. Right after we announced that connector, uh, the folks at Hyper.sh, uh, you know, who works on you know, Kata containers and, you know, they've been doing a lot of work in sort of container runtime space, they have a similar serverless container offering, it turns out. And they, they forked our ACI connector and they wrote a version, uh, you know, uh, for them. And so we've been talking with them about this. And what we are happy to announce here at KubeCon is uh, what we call the virtual kubelet. And, you know, this is something that we uh, just released. It's available on GitHub today, github.com slash virtual kubelet slash virtual kubelet. We'll get that and, in the show notes. Yeah, and uh, and it's great because it's a community endeavor, right? Like this is the hyper is co-maintaining this with us. You know, we expect you know folks like AWS to join in eventually, and you know anyone else who wants to build a serverless container runtime because we really think the community deserves you know for this to be run out of SIG and you know to wind up in in, in upstream in some form. Okay, so are you? I mean, is this sort of the, I mean, because right now CNCF doesn't sort of say this is our serverless implementation that we bless. There's lots of them that are out there, kubeless. There's lots of people doing it different ways. Is this sort of the approach that, that you're suggesting to CNCF or you're kind of recommending or it's just another option that people might want to choose? You know, I think serverless containers are different than functions as a service. And I would say that this, the CNCF has a serverless working group right now. And the first task of the working group is trying to define it, yeah. right? Because like all, <laughs> with all these new things, it's like, you know, how do you define it? Like I gave you my definition, right? But right. like, you know, everyone doesn't necessarily agree on that. And, and, and terminology is hard in these cases. I think the serverless container stuff, uh, you know, it's it's a different animal, and I think that you know, trying to just focus on making this something that folks can you know use and try, and we can kind of learn and iterate is where we are. I mean, I'll just give you some examples. We don't know how things like volume attachments to serverless containers are supposed to function. We don't know how load balancer attach is supposed to function. There's a lot of things that the kubelet does that you know are weird. Scheduling affinities are, are another one, right? So we're trying to solve those problems in the context of the community is something Brendan and I are very interested in and, and we're excited to see the rapid uptake and in, in, uh, in, in interest around the virtual kubelet. Yep. Yeah, you definitely get into a lot of different use cases. How do you just keep containers warm so that if you want to do instantaneous versus I don't need them versus what are all the... Con- I mean like uh, on the Azure Functions section right now you can look and they've got you know, 30, 40 connectors already. Like how do you know, CNCF want to get into that space and sort of define how you should connect to stuff? Maybe, maybe not. But like you said, it's being defined by the community and, and they'll drive, you know, hopefully use case driven stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, really interested in a world where a lot of this stuff is 
running on a same common compute substrate? Because I think there's a lot of benefits to, you know, well, first of all, you know, functions and containers for that matter are, they live in a heterogeneous world. Yep. They live in a world of, you know, uh, functions, containers, VMs, legacy services, cloud services. Um, and making sure we can manage all that heterogeneously is really important. And actually that goes to another thing we announced this week, which is the open service broker for Azure. And actually, this is a, a, a thing I worked on really closely with folks at Red Hat. Uh, me and Paul Mori yep, uh, yeah. got pretty close over this effort. Uh, I remember uh, them and the Google crew flying out to Ardeus offices uh, in, in Boulder to work on the early versions of this. But what this is about, the open service broker is about is, first of all, an acknowledgement that just because you can run something in a container doesn't mean you should, right? Yep. So a production-grade data store, yeah, you could run you know production-grade data store in containers, but... Sometimes it's better to, if you're in a cloud environment to use a cloud data store that has, you know, really great SLA, you know, you know, scale out, hyperscale capability, right? There's a lot of reasons why those cloud services are often a better bet. Sometimes if you're on-prem, you might not have that available to you. But what the service broker does is it allows you to, in a portable way, you know, define a workload that has a dependency on an external database and sort of decouple that so that in one environment it can be using, you know, container-based version and in another you could be using for example, Azure database for MySQL, right? So if you have a, a you know, Postgres, uh, or, sorry, a, a WordPress. So actually we shipped a set of Helm charts with the announcement that allows you to do Helm install WordPress and you get the PHP part in a container running on Kubernetes and then you get the database part on Azure database for MySQL, but you manage it the same way you would any other app, right? Nice. It's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, the uh, the customer interest in the open service broker model in general has been pretty big because the number of customers that I've talked to that we're only ever going to do one public cloud is uh you know is pretty small and you know they're looking for a repeatable way to get access to those services and you know again the fact that it's open in the community and it's a standardized thing has been uh i think is going to be pretty great overall yeah and i really love the way it was developed you know jointly with a, you know, a bunch of companies defining the api spec and, and, and agreeing to it and and you know i think a nod to the cloud foundry foundation for kind of you know donating that and making sure the open service broker was a thing we could all you know you know agree on so really happy to see that now one of the other things just on the open service broker a lot of people are you know love the agility and the speed that it offers because developers can just kind of provision and bind to these things on the fly one of the things that i think is pretty underrated about it is that developers and operations folks for that matter they never touch credentials for the data right. stores right. as part of this flow because you just attach it spins up magically wires and secrets uh, kubernetes secrets your app magically and what that does because you bake that into the app it allows for things like secret rotation to happen completely out of band and the developers don't know because the apps are already modeled to handle secret injection in that automated fashion i think that opens up a lot of interesting possibilities on the security and governance front right yeah, absolutely it's it lets it lets it or or CISO or whoever go, I can now build a model for this, right? So I, I no longer have to you know, deal with shadow IT kind of going around me. You go, look, same services, but I have some visibility of what's going on. Just, um, and I don't know if you guys have, have gotten to this point yet, but like in terms of implementation, how will you distribute that? Will it be like all of the Azure service brokers or that little that use case you gave? Will that be like one service broker? How would a, how would a customer kind of go, hey, I'm, I'm going to get from Azure what's available through the service. Well, program. first of all, it's open source. You can okay. actually go check it out today. Uh, uh, we wrote a brand new version. Uh, you know, We had a broker before for, for sort of Cloud Foundry, and what yep. we did was we re rebuilt it for the new open service broker spec. Okay. It's all written in Go. Um, it features like resume capability, so if a provision operation is interrupted, it'll automatically resume. It's just really hardened. Uh, I, I, I think there's no question it is probably the most advanced broker on the market right now, so okay. if you want to take a look at the other stuff that's out there. Um, 
It is one repo and one broker, though, for all the services. So we have all the services and the service plans in that one broker. Um, that said, I really envision a future where there's lots of brokers to lots of different services. You know, I talk to enterprise customers, you know, re- large retailers, for example, who are running Oracle in the you know, closet or in a data center somewhere, and they want the same experience. They want developers to be able to provision and bind to Oracle, and the open service broker allows you to do that, yep. right? So while we're talking today about Azure services, and broken Azure services, which is you know something most of our customers really want. Um, I think the technology is really general purpose and allows for lots of different use cases. Um, uh, brokering to Helm applications, by the way, is you know and that are running in containers is something that we hear a lot from customers and, and partners alike. Yeah, we, we've been doing it with Ansible. You know, we, yes, we built Ansible, Ansible right. So yeah, we, we see it as, as really broad for that. So. Yeah, I think I think to me the 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 real happy note from you know being in tech, especially open source tech for a while, was that we didn't make something new for the first time ever. It's like, hey, there's a thing that exists. Let's all use that instead of like, let's build a new thing. Yeah. Even though there's this thing that pretty much does what we need. You know, <laughs> I actually think those moments are really important moments, right? And like, you know, the the cloud foundry broker, you know, uh, you know, happen. And and you know, honestly, you know, if companies like Docker, you know, saying, hey, look, you know, this Kubernetes thing is taking off. You know, th- you know, that's important. Companies made Mesosphere, you know, yeah. you know similar thing, right? Yep. I think those moments are. Are pretty hard because it's it's really easy in open source to say, "Hey, I want to write a new thing," um, and it's really hard to put down that new thing and say, "Hey, for the betterment of the community, we're going to work together on that." And actually, you know, the service catalog work—you know—at Deus, we were building a service catalog. We probably would have shipped something faster, yep. um, but we decided, "No, let's put it put put our code away, work together with the community." And I think uh, you know the, the ecosystem benefits as a result. Yep. So we've covered uh, we've covered the Kubernetes services, container services. We've covered open service broker. Let's talk a little bit about uh, both Draft and Helm um, in terms of how do I package an application, how do I describe it, how do I get it deployed. Like, give us the basics for people that maybe haven't uh, aren't familiar with it yet. Yeah. So j- just a little quick history on Helm. So yeah, we were obviously extremely early adopters of Kubernetes and. One of the things we found as we were trying to uh, you know, replatform the, the PaaS solution at Deus on top of Kubernetes was, it's like, I want an off-the-shelf app, or I want to manage a group of manifests, basically. There was no primitive for that at the time. So we really built Helm as a way to like provide this package experience on top of uh, you know uh, Kubernetes to serve our own needs and scratch our own itch. And now here at KubeCon, I walk around and I see like you know Helm plastered on booths everywhere. You know, I talk to the folks at SAP who are using Helm uh, to manage OpenStack running in containers on Kubernetes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just insane how how uh, how much this is uh, taken off and, and, uh, and how much of a community effort it is at this point. I mean, you look yeah. at how many maintainers there are. It's just great to see this federated model of, of, of sort of package management. I think there's a lot of things we have in store for it going forward. But ultimately, at the end of the day, and, you know, you, you heard this in Kelsey's keynote uh, today and, and you heard it in Brendan's keynote uh, last night on MetaParticle, I think we're close to nailing the operations experience with Kubernetes, right? When we start talking about enterprise features and RBAC and, you know, hardening and stuff, you know, like, all right, we're kind of done here. And, and we've been talking about, you know, for a while in the community about, okay, we need to stop adding stuff to core, right? Kubernetes core, right? And I think the next frontier is around developers and empowering developers to use this stuff. And today it's too hard. And so that's really what Draft and Brigade and Kashti, you know, which is another thing that we announced today is a visualization tool for Brigade. They're all designed to make it really easy for developers to go from laptop to production with a fully open source set of tools that isn't tied to any specific cloud provider. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, and that's important. I, and I'll, I'll give a plug. One of your colleagues, Michelle Norelli, I had dinner with her last night, just coincidentally. She's going to be hosting a, a Helm Con, or at least a Helm get-together, I think, in uh, in January in Portland. So uh, we'll put the, the notes, uh, you know, that in the show notes as well. So definitely a big community growing yeah, around that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the big things that we're hearing from folks in Helm is that they really want to have a, a CRD-based model for managing Helm releases going forward. And so that's probably top of the agenda is figuring out. I've actually seen three different implementations of uh, CRD uh, controllers to manage Helm going forward. And so I think that's probably going to be a big, big focal point and making sure that we can align with kind of RBAC, which was, uh, you know, Helm was developed pre-RBAC, making sure we can kind of integrate that really natively. That's going to be probably top of the agenda. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw it was, it must have been uh, KubeCon in Seattle. It was in one of Michelle's sessions and she was demoing it and I was like, this is pretty cool. Yeah. Like, All right. And like you said, how quickly now we're a year later and it's, and it's exploded. Yeah. And you know, one of the other things that I, I think is, is important to call out is Brigade. I don't know if you guys have checked out Brigade, but it, it is unlike anything out there on the market today. And, and so Brigade stems from the idea that Turing complete YAML is a bad idea, right? <laughs> and oftentimes you need to construct workflows that include things like, you know, uh, uh, you know, run some stuff, you know, process an event, you know, fan out, uh, you know, collect results, fan back in. Um, and so, uh, you know, these are for things like CI or uh, ETL workloads or any batch workflows. And so what we did was we built a JavaScript runtime that uh, basically drives Kubernetes. So it has control flow primitives, concurrency you know, primitives, and it calls out to pod execution uh, uh, under the hood. And what we announced this week is Kashi, which is a visualization dashboard that allows you to see like the logs and what failed and you know, the pod executions after the fact, because you know, a lot of the times the visibility ends up being the most important part of debugging these things. Right, so right. really excited about that one. Yeah, the um, you mentioned another one I'd like to dig in a little bit more on is draft. And uh, like you said, the, the developer experience obviously is a key thing. It's, it's something we hear all the time. Uh, and we don't hear that commonly, you know, developers being like, oh, yes. And then I, I change a couple lines of code and then I, you know, run a new kube manifest to run it again. And then I change a couple lines of code. They usually it's part of a CI process. So then the question's usually around like, what would be their, tinkering phase like, you know, like a docker build or something yeah. so i was excited to see draft so if you want to talk about that yeah so we, so we call that in microsoft we we call that phase the inner loop and what the inner loop means is it's when the developer is writing code but before they commit right the, whatever change uh, that they're running when you're writing these distributed applications that are you know microservice based have dependencies on cloud services things like that you just can't model that stuff on a laptop i know you know a lot of yeah. developers i talked to are like i spent you know 3 grand on this macbook i want to run everything on my macbook well you know <laughs> you know uh, sorry you know I, I don't know what to say right cuz cuz these systems are getting so complex that the only way you can actually test your code and get any sense of dev prod parity is to run it in the actual runtime environment where it's going to run right so what draft does is it packages up well it does two things first is you you run draft create and it detects your application code and it'll scaffold out things like docker files helm charts um, ci config any other metadata you want and that's all configurable by the ops team you can you know have your own detect heuristic and your own set of you know docker files and helm charts and whatever it didn't even have to be helm uh, hmm. technically it could be anything um and you know the second thing you do after you've sort of containerized your app via the scaffolding is you write draft up what happens is it'll ship your source code up to the Kubernetes cluster, build your images in cluster, 
you know, render out a Helm release and then give you, uh, you through Draft Connect, give you a, a, a proxy to your application running in the actual environment. So you can test it live. You can test your service dependencies live. And when you're done, you commit and push and CI takes over. And, and part of what's cool is that in the scaffolding, you can actually tuck in your CI config so that, you know, the thing can be zero touch, right? So a developer just types draft create, draft up, hacks away until they're ready, commit, push, deploys all the way out to prod. Depending cool. on how you configure your CI pipeline. So that's the vision, right? Yeah. Very cool. Well, let's, uh, let's hit on the last thing. And I know we get this question all the time. So, uh, Windows containers, um, you know, probably, probably a year, year and a half ago, um, it felt a little bit like DockerCon had become like Windows ContainerCon. I mean, Mark, <laughs> you know, Mark Rosevich was getting on stage. He was showing all these cool demos. Like, give us the basics of where are Windows containers today? Because there's, you know, sort of some stuff that was going on. I mean, you guys did a ton of stuff with, with Docker to make the API compatible. And then we see, like today, in the announcement with Kubernetes, is it's it's beta with Kubernetes. Like, give us a sense of like what could somebody do today, and what's coming in the next six months. Uh, yeah, of course. So, uh, yeah, I noticed your containers are Linux shirt. You're gonna have to guy. Yeah, gonna have to get that one reprinted. Put something yeah, on um, the back. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, no. Uh, listen, Windows containers. Uh, happy to announce they're landing in beta in 1.9 uh, in you know Kubernetes upstream. So, ton of work being done in the SIG windows. You know, folks like Apprenda, Red Hat, obviously uh, do, doing a ton of work. Uh, CloudBase. You know, obviously folks from Microsoft. But really, truly, community effort because a lot of demand for people running Windows. I mean, 80 percent of enterprises, according to Gartner have bet at least some part of their infrastructure on Windows and .NET applications. Yep. So if we really want Kubernetes to penetrate the enterprise, we got to provide a Windows story, right? And I hear it all the time from folks. They really, really want this, right? So um, you know, we're doing a lot of work. In fact, I, I was meeting with the Windows networking team. I mean, it's just crazy. They added so much stuff into you know the latest version of Windows um, in part to support things like Kubernetes. They added the equivalent of IP tables into the Windows networking stack. It's marvel of engineering, honestly. It's it's pretty, pretty impressive. And that's all to make sure that we can get true pod support in Windows containers, fully uh, you know native uh, uh, Kubernetes networking, including all the SD and stuff. That's all you know, pretty much here, right? It's, it's in the process of flowing out. I'm really, really excited about that. And, and frankly, you know, what it means for things like lifting and shifting workloads, which is a lot of demand for that out there uh, today. Lifting and shifting workloads into a Kubernetes cluster is, I think, a big, big opportunity for Windows in particular. Yeah, yeah we, there was a, uh, you know, Microsoft and Red Hat had that partnership, expanded partnership announcement a couple months ago. There was a lot of stuff in it, right? Uh, you know, OpenShift dedicated on Azure and all these different things. The number one thing everyone that we talk to, customer side, enterprise, we ask, like, Windows container stuff, tell us more about that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's definitely a, a hot button issue. Are there any, so lots of people have, like you said, .NET. I mean, .NET and Java probably dominate most of enterprise. There are older versions of .NET. There's new versions of, you know, sort of .NET core. Any guidance or limitations or, you know, what, what can you do with a, a .NET app that'll be in a container? Is it start with a certain version or um, is that sort of depend on the OS or? I, you know, uh, the idea here is that it should be no different than any other container, okay. right? You know, c- containers are an abstraction and, you know, whether you're running .NET Core, .NET Framework, I mean, it really shouldn't matter. And I actually th- would like to get to a place where the choice of the operating system is equally uninteresting, right? Like, <laughs> people want to run Windows because they're more comfortable operating Windows hosts, great. You know, if people want to run Linux hosts, you know, RHEL or, you know, Ubuntu or Debian or whatever, shouldn't matter. Same thing with container runtimes, right? Shouldn't matter what you use. You know, Kubernetes is the de facto API orchestration layer. That's what all these, uh, you know, folks and, and frankly, the tooling uh, should be targeting. And the rest is, you know, should all just work. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we're pretty close. Very cool. Well, listen, I'm going to wrap it up. We are, we're starting to get sort of inundated with people coming on the show floor. Gabe, thank you for so much. Uh, Gabe Ronroy, who is 
given us a ton of insight. We will put uh, all this in the show notes, folks. We, we covered probably, what, 10 different topics. So there's no way you're going to remember all those if you're running or driving to work. But uh, thanks so much for the time today. And uh, we're going to wrap it up, folks. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>